So now I'm going to preach, if that's okay. <laughs> um, so as you all know, I grew up in Virginia, or if you didn't know that, you just learned that, that I grew up in Virginia. Um, and a lot of America's early history happened in the state of Virginia. So they landed in Jamestown. A lot of the Revolutionary War things that happened happened in Virginia. A lot of the settlements, I, my entire fourth and fifth grade history classes were just Virginia history, okay? That we didn't do any other history other than Virginia those two years in school. And there was a lot of history, a lot of great things that happened for our country um, in the state of Virginia. And one of the guys that was born in Virginia, who was always my favorite founding father, uh, was Patrick Henry. And Patrick Henry is not the guy who led him to war like Washington did. He's not the guy who wrote the Constitution. But I always liked Patrick Henry because it seemed to me from what he said that he had more guts than about any of those guys did. At the second Virginia Convention, the colonies were trying to decide how they were going to handle the authority of the King of England. Uh, they were feeling like they were being oppressed, they were taken advantage of, and they were trying to decide what their next move was. And I've shortened Patrick Henry's speech down for you, but I'll read this excerpt from it. It says, if we were base enough to desire it, it is now, or base enough to desire it, it is now too late to retire from the contest. There is no retreat but in submission and slavery. Our chains are forged, their clanking may be heard on the plains of Boston. The war is inevitable and let it come. I repeat, sir, let it come. It is in vain, sir, to extenuate the matter. Gentlemen may cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. The war is actually begun. The next gale that sleeps from the north will bring our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand here idle? What is it that gentlemen wish? What would they have? Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, Almighty God. I know, what, I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. What Henry is saying in this speech and what he's telling the folks around him is that if the price of peace is bondage, it isn't worth it. If standing up for what is right costs us our lives, it is better than the alternative. And today's passage um, is not unlike the situation that our founding fathers were in. It is a much older passage and it is a much better passage, as we'll see, or a much better story, as we'll see. But we'll be in Daniel chapter 3 and we'll start in verse 12 this morning. And verse 12 says, There are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you've set up. Then, in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I've set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this situation. If the, if the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire and he can rescue us from the power of you, 
the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you to know, king, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the statue that you have set up. Let's pray. Dear Father, we want to come to you and thank you for the opportunity to study your word together. We want to thank you for men who are willing to stand up for what is right. And we pray that as we study this passage, God, you will open our hearts to what it is we need to see, and you'll use it in our lives to honor you with everything we have. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So when we enter this story in Daniel 3, we see that the king has forsaken the God that he swore to worship earlier in the book. So at the end of chapter 2 is the story of Daniel, and the king, at the end, after he sees what God has done through Daniel, he says, well, we need to worship this God because he's powerful. He says all of these things, but by the time we get to chapter three, we've already seen that the king has changed his mind. He's not on the same page he was earlier. He has now set up an idol um, and everything has changed. He has turned the eyes of his country towards idol worship. In verse 10, it says, you as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into the, into the blazing fire, um, the furnace. So who is Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar is the king. We'll start there. And why does he do this? So he was the king of Babylon, and under his reign, the city had grown far greater than it ever had been. And at the time, it was believed to have been far greater than any city had ever been. It had grown exponentially. They had flourished. They had done well. Nebuchadnezzar was in many people's eyes, a good king because the kingdom was much greater and much stronger than it was when he started. And with that comes power, and he knew it. And up to that point, everything in the city he commanded to happen, happened. In his own way, he was God over this city. So anything Nebuchadnezzar says needs to happen, somebody makes it happen. Nothing he says needs to happen does not happen at this point. So it's no major surprise when his subjects or when he wants his subjects to go from appreciation to worship. So he's gained so much power, he has gained power to where anything he wants goes that he thinks that his subjects not only appreciate what he's done in growing the city, but they should worship him as the ruler um, of their lives. And while we don't know exactly what the statue that Nebuchadnezzar set up looks like, um, and we don't know exactly, we do know why he set it up rather, um, the king spared no expense, so some believe the statue was 90 feet tall, which means it would not fit in this room, um, or if it did just barely, I don't think it would fit in this room. Three times, yeah, it would be three times as tall as this room. 90 feet tall um, and nine feet wide at the base. Uh, and of course, you know, that's big, and oh, and by the way, it was made of gold. You know, we couldn't spare any expense on the statue we're building, of course, because I'm the king and you know, I want to show my power. Let's build it out of gold, why not? We've got plenty of money. And he seems to have gotten the point in his reign where the only thing he can see clearly is his desire for more of basically anything, whether that's power, money, worship. He wants more of whatever he can get his, or get his hands on. And this is basically the story or the beginning of any villain you've ever seen in any movie or story or anything like that, right? Um, and it's also not new to Babylon's history. If you go back and read Genesis 12, you'll see that the Babylonians tried to build a tower to strip God of his authority and power because they, again, believed that they were just as good as God was and could be who God is. So we see that this country and these people have a history of trying to outdo God and strip his authority from him. 
So when the king thinks he's finally achieved that and three men stand up to deny him, naturally he's going to be angry. Who are these men who are standing up and denying me? Well, in verse 12, we see the men referenced as Jews you've appointed to manage the province of Babylon. And in chapter two, we see Daniel's promoted to a overseer in the country of Babylon. And these men were promoted with him to oversee the peace, do the king's bidding, make sure everything goes smoothly in the country. Yet, these are the men who are standing up to the king and saying, no, I don't think we're going to do exactly what you want us to do. So as king, you can imagine the people you have appointed to do what you want and to have what you want done in the country, that causes some friction. And the friction came from the fact that there was a conflict of plans between God, the men, and the king. And what we can learn from this first is that our plan is not God's plan. Our plan is not God's plan. The king had a plan for his people to worship the idol he had set up. There was no world he imagined where someone would question his authority enough to not bow down and worship that idol. No world. In his mind, he is so powerful, he is so strong that no one could stand up to him and say no. No one. And after all, he's the king. He's brought him so far. You know, you can imagine that. He's thinking, after all I've done for you, you can't just bow down and worship this idol. And that's how pretty much every revolution begins, right? As you know, the king uh, tells his people, I've taken good care of you. You should be appreciative. And now that you're appreciative, you should do what I say. And now what I say is give me more power, give me more, give me more. And before too long, the people realize that peace and oppression is far worse than freedom in death. And they disagreed with him, so he had his ungrateful constituent sentenced to death. We see in verse 19, it says, the Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than was customary. And he commanded some of the best soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the fire or the furnace of blazing fire. So these men in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and other clothes were tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. So the king's command was so urgent and the furnace so extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men fell bound into the fire or into the furnace of blazing fire. So he heats the furnace and he's so enraged that he can't just heat the furnace. He has to heat it seven times what it was originally. That's how mad he is. So if you need a gauge or a number seven times as mad as he would normally be, that's how much he heated the furnace. And every translation you look at says that the men fell into the fire. They weren't pushed because the men who carried them there were killed. So when they got there, they were so weak and I'm sure so hot that all they could do was fall into the fire. When you think about that, um, that these men fell into the fire, we see that the situation for our heroes in our story is not what we would think it would be at this point. And we know in real life, not all stories have happy endings. We know that sometimes people really are martyred for their faith. I think you can look at the New Testament and see Stephen is a great example of that as someone who's martyred for their faith. And sometimes our plans don't work out, right? I mean, sometimes for us, it's, you know, we're broke this paycheck, we have this medical issue, we didn't expect other people to treat us this way, the list goes on. Our plan does not work out the way that we think it will. And the king's plan was not to be defied by his followers. Uh, these men did not plan to be thrown into the furnace, 
Yet God had planned for this to happen all along. And God's plan always prevails. In verse 24, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. He exclaimed, look, I see four men not tied walking around in the fire unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the most high God, come out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. When the satraps, prefects, governors, and the king's advisors gathered around, they saw the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair of their head was singed, their robes were unaffected, and there was no smell of fire on them. So you can imagine the king's surprise when these men fall into the fire, and then they stand back up. You can imagine that a furnace that's normally heated enough to kill anyone and now heated seven times hotter than that, men fall into it, he thinks the story's over. And all of a sudden, he starts to see some guys stand back up. He starts to see some figures in the fire. And you know, you can imagine the guy standing next to him, right? He's, you know, he's like, all right, good, this is over. And then he's looking, he just elbows the guy next to him, you know, hey, did you see that? He said, yeah. He said, how many men are in the fire? He said, what do you mean how many men are in the fire? That's ridiculous. We threw three men. It's three. He said, what you, but count, right? He said, you're not counting. Count the men. So the guy said, one, two, three, four. There are four men in the fire. Four men in the, why are there four men in the fire? What, what's going on here? This is not, not what was supposed to happen. And the fourth guy, he doesn't even look like the other guys. What is this? This is a whole, what is, what is happening? You can imagine the alarm, the, the surprise, the shock that the men who are watching what's happening are going through. Because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not only alive, but they were joined in the fire by a fourth individual. One commentary says that this man had the appearance of a divine being like a son of the gods, who was either a physical appearance of Christ before the incarnation or an angel. In either case, the physical demonstration of God's presence with believers in their distress is a graphic fulfillment of the Lord's promise in Isaiah 43, 2, which says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you and the rivers will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, and the flame will not burn you. So what Isaiah had prophesied, and what Isaiah prophesies is exactly what these men were going through. They were walking through the fire, and this flame did not burn them. They were living God's plan, and because they were living God's plan, God joined them in the fire. So is it worth the cost, is the question we have to ask from that. When God calls us to the fire, we know he will join us in the fire. So is it worth the cost? Verse 27 says, when the satraps, prefects, governors, and the kings of others gathered around, they saw the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair on their heads was singed, the robes were unaffected, and there was no smell of fire on them. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, I issue a decree, a new decree, that anyone of any people, nation, language, who says anything offensive against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and his house made a garbage dump. 
For there is no other God who is able to deliver like this. For there is no other God who is able to deliver like this. The king rewarded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. You see, the king's whole demeanor, his whole heart, his whole thought process changes when God enters the scene. You see, the breaking of the king's heart and the revelation of the one true God came only through the risks taken by believers and followers of the one true God. If these three men had never been thrown into the fire, Nebuchadnezzar never would have seen the one true God. And it wasn't smooth sailing for Nebuchadnezzar if you want to study the rest of his life from there on out. And he had his share of faithless moments after this just as he had before. But the last thing we hear from him in chapter four says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the king of the heavens because all of his works are true and his ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. Because of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, men who are willing to say our God is able, he will save us. But even if he doesn't, we won't bow to your idols. The king who built an idol in direct defiance to the God of the universe, the last thing he says is a praise to the God because men who follow God stood up for what was right and said what needed to be said. And they said the things they said because they knew even in hardship, God's plan and glory is far greater than them bowing to false gods. They were essentially saying, we would rather die than defy our God because we fear him far more than we fear you. These men looked death in the face and said, it is better than the alternative. And that's tough to swallow, especially when we know God's plan can cause us pain and hardship. And it's tough because we live in a world that's getting worse by the day. Our world today, I imagine, wasn't so different from Babylon in our attitude, but the way it looks, I'm sure, is a little different. But just because we live in Babylon does not mean we are required to live like Babylonians. Our world, and specifically our country, is doing its very best to legalize and promote sin. Here's some statistics for you. Uh, I'd looked up these statistics a while back and they'd actually changed. Uh, the 2016 census said among ever married adults, 20 and over, 34% of women and 33% of men had ever been divorced. Now, that number has gone down. Don't be encouraged. It's gone down because people don't see the need to get married anymore. The divorce rate's gone down because the marriage rate has gone down, which means that people are defying God before they get married rather than after. Mind-altering drugs are now legal in half of the United States and some of our territories. Just shy of 110,000 people died of drug overdoses at the end of last year. 37, oh, and 110,000 people, there are only 300 million people in the U.S., so that's a lot. Um, 37 states, and all 50 states in some version or another, um, are allowing same-sex marriage. It is legal, and they're encouraging LGBTQ plus agenda to be taught and pushed in our classrooms of our children across the United States. And here's the good one, or the bad one, rather. 198 abortions to every 1,000 live births happened in the United States last year. That's almost 20%. For every 100 babies that died, or 100 babies that were born alive, 20 of them died from abortion. 
And I know what you're thinking. You're like, Morgan, you're right, but we're not bowing down to those idols. And you're right, because we're bowing down to other idols in our lives. Whether it's our boat, our house, our golf clubs, whatever it is, our kids' sports teams, the Kentucky Wildcats, the Alabama Crimson Tide, whatever it is, our jobs is a big one in America. Whatever we're bowing down to, we're bowing down to something, even if it's not the things that we just talked about. Because the biggest thing our culture teaches us to worship is us. And I think about when I was a high school teacher, I'm gonna pick on my youth because that's my job. Um, think about our high schoolers, and, uh, and they're not guilty. I'm going to get to that in a minute. Or they're, not just, they're not more guilty than us. Um, I think about every break in between class. There was a group of kids making some kind of TikTok video or some kind of something to put on their social media. Every break. They had five minutes to get to class, and they spent three of it making some kind of video to put on social media. Okay, And now you're thinking, those ridiculous kids but they're kids, you know, look at them. They, they're gonna learn just like I learned. How many people got your screen time report on your phone this morning? How many, I know you didn't get minutes. How many of you spent more than a couple hours on your phone each day over the last week, right? Um, I avoid that screen time report like the plague every week because I know when I get it, I'm gonna be very disappointed in myself and my productivity throughout the week. We are addicted to being distracted. Social media, and in America, I think our jobs are one of the biggest things that distract us as we are so dedicated to our jobs, which isn't a bad thing necessarily, um, but those things allow us to make ourselves idols. Movies and TV push you into idolizing other things. Sports and entertainment want us to idolize other people. Our culture is determined to distract us into putting quite literally anything before God. And we jump right in line to worship ourselves because we're sinners in a fallen world. And because we're sinners, we know that our sin earns us spiritual death. Um, but God sent Jesus so that we don't have to deal with our spiritual death, right? We can avoid our spiritual death if we put our faith in Jesus and trust him with our lives. Now that will require us to give things up. God's plan requires believers to risk their comfort, convenience, and sometimes their lives for the kingdom of God. We can all have the things we just looked at and still be believers. I mean, you know, there are plenty of things we do that distract us that aren't necessarily bad until we prioritize them. So we can have those things. We just can't let them become prioritized over God and let them consume our lives. If we scroll on our phone and watch TV all evening but haven't spent time alone with God, we've missed the point. It's all too easy to discredit things like this, this story, when we've been removed from them by time and, or time and place, location. I think about the moon landing and just how that's become a controversial thing. I feel like if I had told my granny I thought the moon landing was fake, she would smack me across the top of the face or top of my head, my face, she'd just get after it. Um, but you know, people who lived in the moon landing area would think you're crazy to even wonder about discrediting that. Yet we do this all the time <laughs> with everything. We do it with scripture especially, and it's easy to do it with this story because we're not living in a time yet where when we defy the king because of our faith, he's gonna throw us into a fire. It's all too easy to discredit these things because we're removed from them. 
Because at the end of chapter two, the king had worshiped God, but he drifted and became enchanted by the worst possible thing he could, himself. Following God's plan is hard and painful, but God does not forsake his followers. Honoring God meant the men would have to go into the fire, but God didn't leave them there alone. He walked willingly into the fire with them. The same God in the fire is the same God Paul talks about in Corinthians. When Paul was in prison writing the letter to the Corinthians, he said, therefore, so that I may not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weakness so that Christ's power may reside in me so that I take pleasure in weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Sometimes to combat our Babylon equivalent, we have to live with a thorn in the flesh. We have to live in difficult situations knowing God can and will deliver us. Just like the three men, we have to have the strength to say that even if our God doesn't deliver us, we won't bow to the world around us. And even if he doesn't deliver us from a difficult situation, even if he doesn't remove the thorn from our side, we need to be able to say his grace is sufficient for us. And his grace is sufficient for those who believe in him. God can not only deliver you from your adversity, but he will use it to bring himself glory. Thinking back to Patrick Henry, uh, his motion only passed narrowly. After a speech like that, you'd think that the whole hall would stand up and beat the table and vote yes, but it barely passed because it was scary. What he said was scary. It was terrifying. They knew if they followed what he said, it was a war where people would die and it would be dangerous. But the end result was the founding of a country based on freedom. And these three men knew that what they were doing would cost them their lives. They knew that the war had already come. And they knew that losing their lives and honoring God was better than the alternative. Keeping their lives, forsaking God, and allowing the king to play God without opposition was far worse than death. And that's an attitude we're not always willing to assume today. We're not always willing to take the scary hard road because we know it's scary and we know it's hard. But God promises us that he will not forsake us. And he promises us that if we are willing to step in the fire for him, he will be right there with us. So as we pray today and as we remember these men, we need to remember that God is in control. We need to remember that his plan will prevail because it's better than our plan. As we pray, we need to pray that we will, help, or we will be helped to stay strong like these men, even in the face of hardship and death, and know that God's grace will carry us through. Let's pray this morning. Dear God, we want to come to you and thank you for an opportunity to come and study your word. We pray that we will stand in the face of opposition and gladly declare that you are still God. And we pray that even 
in the face of danger and potentially death, we will not be afraid to say what is true and what is right. We pray that we will understand and remember that no matter what happens, no matter what happens, you are greater than the alternative. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.